So Acts chapter 2, and as you're finding your way there, let me voice a, a prayer for our time in the scriptures. Heavenly Father, as you open up our Bibles, would you open up our eyes to see beauty in its pages? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might receive and respond to what you would have us receive and respond to this evening? God, we thank you for giving us yourself in the person and work of Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray that you would build us up in that reality tonight, all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in Acts chapter 2, we are talking about one of the most important events that has ever happened in the history of the world. This is the moment, this is the event in history when God essentially turned the lights on in the church. God, Jesus, had been preparing his disciples for his departure from this world, and he has just ascended into heaven and took his seat at the right hand of the Father, and he promised that after doing so, he would send the helper, he would send his spirit to his people, so he encouraged the disciples to return to Jerusalem and to wait there, and the disciples do. They return, and they're waiting on the promise of the Father to be given them, so they unite together in prayer. And they pray for probably about 10 days after the ascension of Jesus, just praying together, seeking God's face together. And then this moment came in Acts chapter 2, a moment that is referred to as Pentecost, the moment when God would give his spirit to all of his people in an unprecedented, unprecedented and unparalleled way in human history. It's one of those events that uh, is oftentimes talked about in the life of the church today as, as one that we wish we could just repeat. You know, we would want a kind of a Pentecost in our own day where we encourage Christians to come together and to pray and to be unified in hopes that Pentecost would repeat itself. However, what you're about to read here in Acts chapter 2 isn't an event to be repeated. It's not an event that would ever repeat again. It was a very unique moment in human history when God did something unprecedented and unparalleled in fulfillment of the promises that he had been making to his people for a really, really long time. So the events of Pentecost isn't necessarily something that is to be repeated, but here's the deal. It is something that is to be perpetuated. That the coming of the Spirit in Pentecost is to be perpetuated and continued in the lives of all God's people throughout the history of the world until Jesus came. And so what I want us to do tonight is I want us to look at this story and, and examine the event of Pentecost, but I want us to see how the coming of the Spirit in this passage what that means for you and I today as we want Pentecost to perpetuate itself in our lives. And we'll be able to see what that means as we discover what Pentecost represents and what the coming of the Spirit is all about. And when you look at the story, there's essentially, well, let me back up. Verse 1, uh, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And so this event that's referred to as Pentecost is really just piggybacking on a festival that the people of Israel celebrated once a year. There were three big feasts or festivals that drew God's people from all over the known world to Jerusalem uh, and a sort of pilgrimage to commemorate and to celebrate activities that God had done in the history of Israel. And the three festivals, one of which uh, would be Passover. Now, Passover was the moment when Jesus was uh, entering Jerusalem on the donkey, and there were lots and lots of people in the city, and, and, all, and Jesus was eventually betrayed, and he was tried and crucified. All of that took place around during the Passover celebration. And Passover was the time when the people of Israel looked back to the book of Exodus and remembered how God delivered them from Egyptian slavery and bondage and began the process of bringing them into the promised land. 
about 50 days after Passover, you would have what's called Pentecost. And this was a, another celebration that drew people from all over the known world. Many God-fearers and God-worshippers would come to Jerusalem to celebrate and to commemorate another feast and another festival. Now, Pentecost is unique because Pentecost commemorated two things. On one hand, Pentecost was the time when Israel would commemorate and celebrate what happened at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24. When God's people were gathered there and God gave his law and established his covenant with his people through the giving of the Ten Commandments and his word. It was a wild scene and we'll look at it here in a moment. But then a second dynamic of Pentecost was that annually it corresponded with the time when Israel would kind of reap the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And so it was a time when God would provide for his people and they would collect the first initial grains and provisions from God for them. And so on one hand, it represented the giving of the law. And then on the other hand, it represented kind of God's giving provision to his people and they would celebrate that. But then there was a third festival that was a pilgrimage time when people would come to Jerusalem, similar to this. And that was what's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Now this Opportunity was there for the people of Israel and everyone who feared God and worshiped the Lord to come to Israel and commemorate and celebrate how God provided for Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, they lived in tents, they lived in booths, and they kind of um, they built the tabernacle, was kind of a mobile tent that housed the presence of God in their midst. And these tabernacles, these booths, is what the people of Israel would live in as they journeyed for 40 years for 40 years. Now, all three of these festivals were significant, and all three of these festivals find their origins in the book of Exodus. So if you and I are going to understand what Pentecost is all about and what the coming of the Spirit means for you and me, we have to understand this story in light of the narrative of Exodus and what God did in the history of Israel. So hopefully we will be able to see these connections as we talk about these, this particular story. Now, you keep reading through the text, and, and basically, I just want to zero you in on three miracles that happen in this moment and at this time, three miracles that communicate to different aspects of what the coming of the Spirit means for you and for me. It's how Pentecost continues or Pentecost perpetuates itself in our lives and in our church. Now, the first miracle that you come across there is verse 2, and Luke writes, suddenly a sound like a violent rushing wind came from heaven. Now, what I like about this is as things begin to shake up and things begin to happen at Pentecost, Luke was trying to, was trying to put it into words, and it's really hard to articulate and communicate what is going on in this instance, so he has to use words like like. Well, it's like a sound of a violent wind. Maybe not exactly like that, but it was like that because that's how metaphors work when we try to put words to things that are indescribable. He says the same thing in verse 3 when, when they saw tongues like flames of fire that were um, separated and rested on each one of them. He's trying to put into words what they are experiencing in this moment, and the best he could come up with in verse 2 is a violent rushing wind. Now, what I want you to understand is where this violent rushing wind came from. It says that this violent rushing wind came from heaven. They heard a sound coming down towards them. Now, you know that in any emergency when you need help, you hear your help long before you see it. If you've ever been in a situation where you called 911 and you 911 and you needed police intervention or an ambulance to come your way or a fire truck to roll up with help, the sirens are going to reach you before your help actually makes it to you. You hear your help before you actually see it. 
And that's the rhythm here. Help is coming to a powerless people. Help is coming their way in fulfillment of the promises of God. And the disciples, the 120 that were gathered in that room, they hear it before they see it in the flaming tongues of fire that we'll talk about in a moment. So when it comes to this this violent rushing wind, what this means for you and I is that the coming of the Holy Spirit refers to help from heaven. That a Christian and a church's help comes from heaven. Now, this is significant because we live in a culture that wants to encourage us or uh, to think that our biggest problems are outside of ourselves. And if our biggest problems are outside of ourselves, then the solution to those problems is to be found by looking inward. And so we tend to try to find help for our lives by pursuing some type of uh, journey or process of self-discovery or self-fulfillment or self-this, that, or the other. We live in a culture that says your problems are external, the solution is internal, but the rhythm of the gospel is the exact opposite. This is one of the truths that makes Christians and it makes the church a counter-cultural community. Because what the gospel communicates to you and I is that our biggest problems are not external. Your biggest problem is not your spouse. Your biggest problem is not your roommate. Your biggest problem is not your uh, obtrusive boss. Your biggest problem isn't this, that, or the other. The gospel says that a person and a people's biggest problem is the sin that exists within. And if that is true, then you cannot look within to find solution to your problems in life, and you cannot bypass the need to, to deal with that issue. You must look outside of yourself for help. And that's what the gospel declares. The gospel says a person and a people's biggest problem is internal. And the only solution to that problem must be found by looking outside. We must look externally. In other words, we've got to look up. We've got to look towards heaven. And this is what the disciples are doing. They've gathered to pray. What is prayer but the act of a people who are desperate enough to look to heaven for help? And in response to that prayer, this sound like a violent rushing wind comes their way as God is providing help from heaven. God's help for us and for our church always comes from outside of ourselves. There was a psychotherapist uh, named Lori Gottlieb. She still practices today. She writes a lot of books. She's written several articles for the New York Times, and she Uh, has made some observations about how her clients have changed over the last 15 or 20 years. She made some observations. She said, you know, about 15 years ago, people would come into my office and they would say, you know, I need you to help me understand myself so that I can change. But she said in recent years that that starting point has changed. So that a lot of people are entering her office and the conversation begins with this. Uh, So my problem is out there and I need you to help me deal with it. I need you to help me. Um, My problem is out there, and they need to change. And she makes the observation that few people come into my office saying that they want to change. Instead, they come into my office expecting everyone else to change. That if this would change externally, that this would change circumstantially, if this, that, or the other could be dealt with outside of myself, then life for me would go a lot better. And what she's picking up on is that we've basically built into our culture, in the American culture specifically, over the last 30 years is a hyper self-esteem focus. So that we've pumped self-esteem into people so much that now as adults, when they have a problem, they never assume that the problem is them. You know, we never say, I'm my biggest problem. 
we always say, so-and-so is my biggest problem, or that's my biggest problem, or this over here is my biggest problem. And she's making this observation from a secular perspective because she's recognizing if you come into that setting and you put all of your problems outside of yourself, then you're not going to find the help that you need. And the gospel's been saying that for 2,000 years. If you live your life in a fallen world and you're constantly looking around you, placing the blame for everything that is problematic in your life outside of the self so that you're not dealing with the sin within and you're not examining your heart, you're not humbling yourself before your creator and saying, God, I, I can't handle this. I cannot change my heart apart from you. If you never get to that spot, you might not make much progress in this life. You might not grow into a healthy, holy, humble human being that God would have you become. But one of the good news of the gospel is that help has come from heaven. God has given his spirit to his people so that as we trust in the gospel, we are filled with his spirit. And his spirit begins to work within us so that we are able to confess our sins. We are able to look to Jesus. We are able to cry out to God for help, recognizing that a Christian and a church's help always comes from heaven. It always comes from outside the self. This is why there's so many refrains all throughout the New Testament that tell us, uh, well, one of my favorite passages, Hebrews chapter 1, chapters 12, verses 1 and 2, where uh, we're told to, to fix the eyes of our faith upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. What is that? That's looking outside of yourself for help. That's looking outside of yourself for salvation. That's looking outside of yourself for transformation. You're fixing the eyes of your faith, not upon yourself, but upon your Savior. Not upon your problems, but upon God's provision in Jesus. And so the coming of the Spirit reminds us of that. We have this sound like a violent rushing wind coming from heaven because our help comes from that location. But then there's a second dynamic where you have this move from the violent rushing wind to what's described in verse 3 as tongues like flames of fire. Tongues like flames of fire. Now, another way of saying this, that tongues like flames of fire remind us that the coming of the Holy Spirit provides heat in our hearts. And here's what I mean by this. When you read through the book of Exodus, you're going to see many times when God shows up. God shows up and he manifests himself. He shows out, so to speak. And every time God's presence appears in Exodus, it takes the form of fire. It takes the form of this symbolic flame that is burning and that is shining and that is blazing. I'll give you examples. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. This is the moment when the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And listen to what it says. It says, then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. Then you move forward to Exodus chapter 13. This is when Israel's now leaving Egypt, and they're about to follow the Lord through the wilderness. And listen to how it's described. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day, and a pillar of fire to give them light at night, so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. And then you move forward, Exodus chapter 24, the moment when God's people show up at Sinai and God establishes his covenant with his people. He gives the law. Listen to what happens. It says, the appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And then you keep going to the end of the book, Exodus chapter 40. 
God has instructed Moses to build the tabernacle in fine detail. And Moses went to work to build the tabernacle, which was uniquely designed to house the glory of God's presence in the midst of the people. And listen to what happens in Exodus chapter 40. It says, so Moses finished the work. I love that phrase. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled within the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. So you have this moment all throughout Exodus where God's showing up and he's showing out in the midst of his people and his glory, his presence takes the form of a fire within them. And then you come to Acts chapter 2 where Pentecost happens and the celebration of all the things that went down in Exodus is being celebrated by God's people in that city and God shows up and once again he shows up, his presence takes the form of fire. The difference is when God's presence falls in this moment, it doesn't fall onto a temple and it doesn't fall upon a physical tabernacle. Instead, what goes down is that this, these flaming tongues of fire symbolizing the presence of God came down and it rested on the head of each and every person who was present. And what that signals for you and I is a major shift from the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Covenant, the New Testament. Remember Jesus' last words from the cross after he accomplished the work of redemption for, for God's people? He's being crucified on the cross and he looks out upon the people and before he breathes his last breath, he cries out, it is finished. The work of redemption is accomplished. And after that, 50 days after that moment, God's spirit falls upon a new temple, a new tabernacle, one that isn't built by, by brick and mortar and stone, but one that is filled with people of flesh and blood, people like you and I. A major shift where God's presence doesn't just come to dwell in the midst of God's people, but God's presence comes to dwell within every single one of God's people. So that if you are a Christian, you are an animated sanctuary. You are a burning bush. You are a temple of the living God. This is why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. You are an animated sanctuary, a place where heaven and earth collide. You are a burning bush. You are temples of the living God. And what that means is that as you meditate upon that, as you rest in that reality, that should warm up your soul in a life-changing, purpose-giving kind of way. All this is going down on Pentecost. After the Spirit would come down and rest upon each person, we're told that the Holy Spirit then filled each and every one of them up. To be a Christian is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian is to have the heat of God's presence in your life all the time. 
But what does that mean? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it feel like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? How do you know if you are filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, I think it's a lot like what happened in Jesus' life the day he was baptized. At the start of his public ministry, Jesus hooked up with his cousin, John the Baptist, and he went into the water to fulfill all righteousness, and his cousin baptized him there. And in this scene, after John the Baptist would place Jesus under the water, as he was coming up out of the water, we are told that a voice from heaven cried out. And this voice from heaven spoke, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And as that voice was speaking, the Spirit was falling upon Jesus like a dove from heaven. I think being filled with the Holy Spirit is a lot like that. I think being filled with the Holy Spirit is a lot like hearing the voice of your Heavenly Father saying, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. I think Paul would press this upon us when you read several passages in the New Testament, one of which would be Romans chapter 8 verse 16. We are told that the Holy Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. That the Holy Spirit is assuring us and affirming us of the Father's affections for us. It says the same thing, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means to know that you are loved. It means to know that you are accepted by the creator of the universe. It means to know that you are rescued and redeemed, that you were being transformed. This is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a history in the church, particularly on American soil, that suggests that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then you will speak in tongues. And sometimes people who say that will look at Acts chapter 2 as kind of the paradigm for that, and they'll say, well, that's what happened then. That's what should happen here. The problem is, in Acts chapter 2, when tongues is talked about, it seems that Luke is talking very clearly about languages that are being spoken and that languages that could be heard and understood and that were familiar to many people that were present there. And it's a different kind of tongues than what we read about in the book of 1 Corinthians, say 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so I don't think the two are related. I think these are two different types of tongues that are being talked about. And so we've got to be very careful that we don't, Say things like, if you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then you're going to speak in tongues. No, if you, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to know that you're loved. Being filled with the Spirit is more about knowing you are loved by God than it is, has more to do with that than with speaking in tongues. And so how do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? Do you believe God loves you? How do you know that you're filled with the Spirit? Do you believe that you are a daughter or a son of God? Are you trusting in the gospel where God would declare his love for you and he would demonstrate his love for you and he would sweep you up into his family through the sacrifice of his son? If you want to know if you're being filled with the spirit, it has to do with believing that you are loved by God. Now, as the disciples are filled with the spirit in this moment, there are some things that take place with language that we'll talk about here in a moment, but the scene got kind of chaotic. Pentecost was a moment God came down, he began to fill up his people, things were rather chaotic, and everybody's trying to get their read on the situation. Everybody's offering up their interpretation. Some are all about it. They believe this is a work of God. Others are more confused and perplexed. And you get to verse 13, and they even accuse everyone of being drunk. They're like, look at these people. They've been drinking the good wine, and it's only 10 a.m. in the morning. And, And so they're reading it and interpreting it that way. But this isn't the only passage where 
the activity and the work of the Holy Spirit is, being, is confused with what it means to be drunk or what it means to consume alcohol. Another example would be Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul tells the church, Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there is some kind of connection between being filled with the Holy Spirit and being drunk with wine. Now, I think there's lots of connections that we could have fun thinking about and dreaming about this morning, but I just want to, this evening, but I just want to focus you in on one. If you've ever gotten drunk or you've ever been around anybody who has gotten drunk, they've consumed too much alcohol and the alcohol began to take over their body and causing them to say and do things that they would not normally say and do, I think that's part of it. You see, a person who drinks a lot of alcohol, they do so, uh, and what happens is alcohol serves as a depressant. It depresses parts of the brain so that your, your understanding of reality begins to shrink. So that you get tunnel vision and you're looking in this direction and you're not seeing the big picture anymore. And when you're not seeing the big picture, all of a sudden your inhibitions have been removed and you are more apt and prone to say and do things you would never say and do. If you've ever been around someone who is drunk, you might have seen them demonstrate something called joyful fearlessness. Where they're happy and they're fearless all at the same time. This is why a little guy goes after the big guy in the bar, right? It's not because he's strong. It's because he's joyfully fearless. His inhibitions have been removed and his understanding of reality has shrunk. He's not aware of consequences. He's not aware of any sense or source of shame. It's just right there locking in and he's exuding this ridiculous fearlessness. Well, being filled with the Holy Spirit can be a lot like that. In the sense that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, of course the Holy Spirit isn't a depressant. The Holy Spirit doesn't act upon us in a way that depresses our minds and shrinking our understanding of reality. But the Holy Spirit does come upon God's people and he removes inhibitions. And he gives us a type of joyful fearlessness that leads us to say and do things we might not normally say and do. You're going to see this all throughout the book of Acts where the church is proclaiming the gospel with great boldness. They are being used by God to bring healing to the sick. They are casting out demons. They are saying and do things they could never do in and of themselves. And they're doing it fearlessly. They are doing it joyfully. They are doing it boldly. But why are they able to do that? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit has come upon them and he hasn't shrunk their understanding of reality. He's actually enlarged it. And they are living and operating not out of tunnel vision. They are living and operating with universal vision. They know who God is. They are aware of what God is about. They believe they are loved by God. They know they have a role to play in the story of God in the world. The Holy Spirit has been given to them, empowering them for these purposes. And so their inhibitions have been removed, not because their understanding of reality has shrunken, but because their understanding of reality has enlarged. It's universal vision. They know God. And when you know God, specifically when you know the love of God, that's when you're going to find yourself with a joyful fearlessness. That's when you're going to be able to speak up in sharing the gospel with your friends and with your family. That's when you're going to be able to pray for the sick. That's when you're going to be able to recognize the schemes of the enemy and combat it with prayer and the word. That's when you are going to be the people that God has redeemed you to be. Filled with the spirit, living out a joyful fearlessness because your understanding of reality has been enlarged. 
You are aware, Christian, that God has a plan and a purpose for the world. You know that there's coming a day when Christ will return and he's going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And you're living in light of that. And when you're living in light of that, it changes your daily priorities. It liberates you to be able to do things you might not ordinarily do, i.e. forgive people who've wronged you. I.e. share the gospel with people who do not yet know the love of the Savior. I.e. resist sin because sin is just a waste of time and it's a waste of energy. It's a waste of effort. Everything that is sin and sinful is going to be abolished one day. So why mess with it now? Instead, you pursue holiness because holiness is eternal. You pursue practical righteousness because practical righteousness is eternal. You pursue love because love lasts forever. This is the reality that you're living in. This is where you are as someone who's filled with the Spirit, who's experienced God's presence working within them to transform them and to grow them and to develop them. And then that brings us to the third miracle that we want to look at this passage. And that third miracle concerns supernatural speech. Supernatural speech, look at verse 4. It says, then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues, different languages as the Spirit enabled them. Then you drop down to verse 10 and all the people who are present, they're coming from all over the place, different nationalities, different cultures, different languages were represented in that moment. And it says in verse 11 that we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. So people are speaking and people are hearing all this is happening. Supernatural speech is occurring. And so what this means for you and I as we think about the coming of the Spirit is that, is that the coming of the Spirit means hope for all nations. And the reason why it means hope for all nations is because God speaks every language. God speaks every language on the planet. Therefore, God can and will speak to every nationality, every culture, every people group in the world. That is being demonstrated, and a flash of that is being illustrated in the day on the day of Pentecost. Now, think about what this means. Now, there's a lot here for us to consider, but think about what it means for the first presentation of the gospel to happen in every language all at once. Think about some of the implications. The first presentation of the gospel in this passage happened in every language at the same time. What I think that does for us, it helps remind us that one, yes, God speaks every language. But it also helps us to see that we cannot elevate any language and by extension, we cannot elevate any culture above any other language or any other culture in the world. With the way Pentecost happened and the way this event happened, it leveled the playing field of all languages. It leveled the playing field of all cultures so that no one can assume the pride of place. So that no language or culture in the world can elevate themselves above any else. And this event makes Christianity the most unique religion and expression of faith in the entire world. There's a professor of theology and missiology at Yale. His name is uh, Laman Saneh. He wrote a book several years ago now called Whose Religion is Christianity? And the book is incredibly, incredibly insightful. And he's writing as a man who came to faith after he spent many years as a Muslim. And he was practicing the Islamic faith. And then he met Jesus and he became a Christian. And now he's a professor at Yale. And in this book, he compares and contrasts 
Islam and Christianity, and he can do that from a position of authority and from a position of experience, because that was his story, that was his journey. And this is what he tells us in this book. He says, you know, if you were to pick up a copy of the Quran, and it was in English, no Muslim would ever tell you that that is God's word. Instead, what you're going to see on the front cover of every Quran that has been translated into any other language, it would say this. It would say, this is an English explanation of, of the Quran. Or this is a Chinese explanation of the Quran. And so Muslims do not believe that you can read God's word in any language outside of Arabic. You can read explanations of what the Quran says, but you can't actually read and hear God's word unless you're reading and hearing in Arabic. And that is, according to this scholar, because God speaks Arabic. And then when you become a Muslim, and if you begin to take that faith seriously, and you grow in that faith, you're going to find yourself moving towards a unified Islamic culture. This is why temples that are where Muslim faith is exercised and practiced, where that worship is engaged, you go into these temples, you're going to see it takes on the, a very, the, the same look, the same feel. Everybody is worshiping and approaching God in the exact same ways. They're wearing similar clothing, they're eating similar food, because the Muslim faith draws people towards a unified Islamic culture. But what he points out, he says, in light of Pentecost, is that Christianity is completely different. It's completely different from that, because we do not believe that the Bible is an explanation of God's word. Whatever translation you're reading tonight, whether it's English or Chinese, God's word is coming to you through the pages that, you're, that you find in your Bibles. That God speaks every language. This is why we believe in Bible translations and we believe that no translation is inferior to a next just because of the language that it is in. But God's word speaks every language. That is uniquely Christian. And then he also points out that, that there is no real unified or there's no real unified culture that Christianity must conform to. And he points out that Christianity is the most culturally diverse religion on the face of the planet. It's the most culturally diverse religion in the world. And the reason for that is because when the gospel penetrates a people group and it crosses a cultural boundary, the gospel doesn't insist that that culture becomes Jewish. The gospel certainly doesn't insist that that new culture becomes American. He's saying, no, the gospel is crossing these cultures. Lives are being affected and transformed by the gospel. And people are expressing their worship in cultural categories that are familiar to them, that correspond with their language, that correspond with their heart, their heart talk. And so what this means for us is we think about who we are as Christians in America and we think about who our brothers and sisters are in North Africa or if you ever travel crossing cultures and you go to other gatherings like this where Christians are worshiping Jesus, you do not step into that gathering critiquing, thinking, well, we do it back in America like this. This is how they should be doing it, right? They need an electric guitar, not, not a djembe. They need just one vocalist and not a whole chorus of vocalists. Or they need to be sitting like this and not standing up listening to the sermon the whole time, which is what Christians do in some parts of the world. Now, you recognize that Christianity can express itself according to the unique cultures that it is infecting and that it is influencing the light of the gospel. To put it another way, in John chapter 4, when Jesus is having a conversation with a woman from Samaria, 
she asks a question about where true worship is to occur. Is it going to happen on this mountain over here, or is it going to happen at the temple in Jerusalem? And they're talking about that, and then Jesus kind of reframes the conversation. He says, there is coming a day when the Messiah arrives, and I am the Messiah, and I'm telling you that there's coming a day when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. They will worship according to the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is how true worship is going to occur. And what he does in that moment is incredibly brilliant, is that he simplifies the worship equation so that when the movement of the church is launched in the book of Acts, all of a sudden the disciples aren't bringing culture across cultures. The disciples are simply bringing gospel across cultures. And that's important for you and I when we think about nurturing a global mentality and sending teams to North Africa and other parts and pockets of the world. We are not exporting American Christianity that is culturally bogged down. What we are bringing when we cross cultures is spirit and truth. It is gospel realities. And when we see churches planted in other cultures and in other contexts around the world, we want the gospel to express itself according to where it is planted. So that when you become a Christian, and maybe you are Chinese, you don't, you don't cease to be Chinese. No, you are a Chinese Christian. You are expressing your faith through your Chinese heritage, your Chinese culture, your Chinese frame of reference. You are praising Jesus in your native tongue. You are looking at ways that is uniquely, looking at aspects of your life that may be uniquely Chinese, and you're leveraging it towards Jesus' direction. Because what we bring cross-culturally, when when we are part of a movement of God in this world, we are not exporting and transporting anything that is weighed down by cultural trappings. Clothing, food, music styles, preaching styles. We're not transporting any of those things. What we are bringing is spirit and truth. We're bringing the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what the coming of the Spirit means at Pentecost is it means that there is now hope for all nations. And this means the gospel can actually cross cultures and it can penetrate people groups all over the world. And it can do it quite easily and quite naturally because we're not asking cultures to, we're not asking Ethiopians to cease being Ethiopians and to become American. We're not asking Americans to become Jewish. No, we're lifting up the the. We're lifting up the crucified and the risen Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we recognize that the forms of our worship may differ from culture to culture, but the substance of our worship remains the same. So what you and I have in common with our brothers and sisters in other parts and pockets of the world is the fact that we worship a Jesus who died for our sins, a Jesus who rose from the grave conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death, and we worship this Jesus in the power and the energy of the Holy Spirit. That's what we share in common with every people group where the gospel is present, where Christians are active. And so we consider Pentecost and the ramifications it has for the nation. Supernatural speech, hope for all peoples because God speaks every, every language. And what you really have here in Acts chapter 2 is is a little snapshot, it's a little flash in the pan of what's going to happen at the end of the story when all is said and done. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, you have this moment where members, a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that is Jesus. 
They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. This moment where people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are singing Jesus' praises, are worshiping Jesus forever and always. That's the hope of the nations. And that's what drives our movement. That's why we nurture global mentality. That's why we talk about sharing the gospel because we know that day is coming. And we get to participate in seeing that day fulfilled as we make disciples and we bring the gospel to people around us in the power of the Holy Spirit. So you think about the coming of the Spirit and what it means for us. It means our help comes from heaven. It means that the Spirit ignites heat in our hearts so that we know that we're loved by God. And he fills us with a joyful fearlessness. And it means hope for all peoples, hope for all nations, that no language or culture is to be elevated above any other language or any other culture. I love the egalitarian nature of the kingdom of God. This is what Pentecost proclaims. But then let's think a little bit further about this. There was the question, okay, so why does this happen on Pentecost? Why does it happen in this moment in the way that it does? Well, remember, Pentecost was a celebration that took place 50 days after Passover. And in the book of Exodus, it happened 50 days after, or so it seems, after God gathered his people at Mount Sinai and entered into a covenant relationship with them. And there were three things that happened in Exodus 24 that also show up at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that are very similar but a little different from what goes down. If you were to read Exodus chapter 24, the moment uh, when this event, the, the event that's being commemorated here actually goes down, three things happen. There's a moment when God comes down and he meets with his people. His coming down was accompanied with fire. And then there was a message a message that was given to Moses, which was the law of the Ten Commandments that he would turn and bring to, to God's people. You look at Acts chapter 2, very similarly. God comes down, fire is present, and a message is declared. The magnificent acts of God are rehearsed and are spoken in every language and everybody hears it. Now, one of the big differences is that on Mount Sinai, everybody who heard this and witnessed this and saw it go down, everyone got scared. And so most of the people didn't want anything to do with it, so they actually ask for Moses to go up to the top of the mountain and serve as the mediator because they can't handle this law. They can't handle this holiness. They can't handle this powerful presence of God. And so they're afraid, and they say, Moses, can you go up and talk to God for us? We don't want to talk to him. And so in that moment, Moses becomes a mediator. And while he's at the top of the mountain receiving God's Law, God's word, the people of Israel down at the base, and they begin to disobey. They start to sin. They're breaking the commands before the commands even make it down the mountain. And and God says, okay, I'm not going to judge them because they have sinned, and I'm holy, and they're not, and they're messing everything up. And Moses then intercedes, and he prays, and as he intercedes, and as he prays, God relents, and he spares his people in that moment. Now, you get to Acts chapter 2. God comes down, fire is present, and the people are hearing God's word. But after they hear the message, they want to hear it again. They're not scared. They're not afraid in this moment. Why is that? Well, they're not afraid and they're not scared in Acts chapter 2 because it says what uh, Timothy Keller described when he says, we have a new man on the mountain. We have a new mediator. We have one who is greater than Moses. 
We have one who is mediating our relationship with this holy God, not just through prayer, but he's mediating our relationship with God through his death on the cross. This Jesus who carried the law of God forward, fulfilling all righteousness through his life so that when he goes to the cross, he would die there for our sins forever and always. This Jesus who would rise from the grave and he would ascend to heaven, taking his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, or to put it another way, he would ascend to the top of the mountain where he would mediate and intercede for all of us at all times. And so what this means is that the message that the people of Israel heard, they were afraid of it because it was law. The church in Acts chapter 2, they heard this word and they want to hear it again and again and again because it wasn't law, it was gospel. The fulfillment of God's salvation, the fulfillment of God's redemption had been accomplished by Jesus. And when you hear that story, you hear the gospel, it excites you, it doesn't frighten you. It pulls you in, it doesn't push you away, so that you want to hear the gospel over and over and over and over again. And as you hear the gospel over and over again, you then are compelled with the heat that that sets off in your heart to take that gospel, to take that message to everyone around you. This is the difference between Pentecost and Sinai. God came down. God's word was shared. God's word was heard, and people wanted more of it. You know you are filled with the Holy Spirit when you have an appetite for the gospel in your soul. When you can't get over hearing the gospel, what God has done for you over and over and over again. When that incites you, when that enthralls you, when that compels you out into the world, that is the work of the Holy Spirit filling you up and stirring you up just as he intends and desires to do. Let's pray together.